Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brugic, and today we're joined with Dr. Chris Levens talking all about the wiper on today's OI show. Chris Levens, absolutely honor, always, always an honor to be communicating with you. Uh, Chris, if you could share with the audience a little bit about your background, where you practice, what your role is at SCO. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Brugic, thanks for having me on. Mila, it's always a great pleasure. Fun to talk to you. And I've, been, I've done a lot of things in, in, in eye care over the years. I mean, early on in practice, I was in a, uh, a two-location, three-doctor private practice. I was in an ophthalmology anterior seg practice. I was in the United States Air Force for a few years. But for the past, past 23 years, I've been at Southern College of Optometry, where I've taught a number of classes. I've taught some labs. i been chief of primary care, chief of staff, chief of internal clinics, and I'm pivoting. So just recently, I became the director of research at Southern College of Optometry. Congratulations, Chris. I've had the good honor and fortune to just work with you on a number of projects, a number of roundtables, a number of consulting meetings. And um, your insights are always very inquisitive, but always very uh, it always brings it back to what's clinically applicable and what are the things that we need to be thinking about most. But the thing that I'm most excited to share about with you and to really pick your brain about a little bit is, you know, just when you think from the outside looking in, you look at uh, Dr. Chris Levens and you say, well, this guy has it set. He can just sit and coast <laughs> wow. through the rest of his career. And he's he's made it to the epitome of what optometry is and should be and could be. Uh, <laughs> You went out and got a PhD. Congratulations, congratulations, Chris. Tell us a little bit more about what your topic was. Sure. So, um, you know, when you do a PhD, it's hyper-focused in a very small area. And so you really have to be take, take a step back and say, really, what do I want to spend the next number of years looking into? And I, I, I think I had just done a couple clinical trials uh, for our industry, two different industry partners, and both of them were anterior seg based. And both of them had asked me to evaluate a condition that I really hadn't heard of. I hadn't ever looked at. And I'm like, well, how could I be an optometrist, see patients every day and not looked at this part of the eye. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And so that's really what motivated me to study lid wiper epitheliopathy. So Chris, tell us a little bit more about your research and tell us, because again, theoretically, we understand what it is. Um, Technically speaking, because Don Corb, if memory serves it correct, he first published this in the literature back in, I think it was 2001 or the early 2000s, where he first kind of described this. And I remember reading about this, and it certainly is at the basis behind everything that you are passionate about. I mean, whenever I see you communicating about things, it's the aging eye, it's ocular surface diseases, contact lens, comfort or discomfort. So tell us a little bit more about what your work focused on. So when I did course through all of the research that had ever been published of this condition, and, and you're right, Don Corp really brought it to the forefront. Uh, his first publication was, you almost nailed it, 2002, and he had several publications after that. And when I looked over the past, let's say, 10 to 15 years of work, when I first got into this, it, it, there seemed to be a lot more agreement that this was a this was a factor in dry eye disease. But when it came to contact lens discomfort and contact lens intolerance, uh, it was a bit more equivocal. There was a, a number of papers which said, yeah, 
this is really important. And a number of papers that says, well, we're not quite sure. Well, it's like the analogy. When there's smoke, there's fire. Something was going on here. And so when I looked at them critically, I realized the first thing that jumped out to me was when people were clinically identifying, going through the processes of uncovering this finding, which is on the lid margin of both lids, that they were using very different approaches to identify. And so it was very haphazard. So and you're so, talking about a lack of standardization. You're hundred percent. Yeah. You're asking what, what's the prevalence of dry eye in a population? And then you ask those people to define dry eye and they define it totally differently. So you're going to get different numbers. Yeah. 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 Got it. Yep, it's like Jordan doing a dry assessment and everybody's picked different tests or yep. different questionnaires. And so mm-hmm. I really, it, it wasn't where I, in, I wished to start, but I felt like it was it was on me to come up with the optimal methodology to identify this clinical finding. And so I did that. And so my first publication, uh, in a nutshell, showed that to really identify this, it it's a little bit askew from how we typically identify anterior segment structures. It does require a vital dye, which we do employ quite often. Uh, but what's an interesting is that if you don't get enough dye in at specific time points, you, you're, you're going to potentially miss it. So this clinical finding does require two drops, uh, at least approximately a minute apart for either sodium fluorescein, which you can use, or lysamine green to truly identify. If you use sodium fluorescein, you after the second drop, you need to wait three to five minutes before that before evaluation. Um, with lysamine green, after two drops, a, a minute later, you can take a look. And so that's Chris, a little bit different. Did, did you find any differences between sodium fluorescein versus lysamine green? Meaning, did one show up? Yes, you have it. And the other was absent of that? Or were there discrepancies between those? Or did they almost overlie with each other, uh, barring the fact that you followed that that procedure, that protocol? So Mila, it's difficult to scientifically directly compare the two because then you're mixing dyes because you're looking because you want to look at the same eye. If you look Mm -hmm. on different days, there could be different degrees of progression. So I I didn't specifically directly compare them, but what I did do is just with a clinical unbiased eye, I can tell you this, though both dyes work, sodium fluorescein is challenging because, you know, when you put in sodium fluorescein and evert, let's say the upper lid, you, a clinician's eyes within a millisecond go right to an area of abnormality or, or, or clinical curiosity. And to me, that's the tarsus of the lid. I, I immediately go to, ooh, are there papillae there? What's the papebral roughness? I don't, I don't go to the lid margin. And so it, it, you know, you're, you're not drawn to it. Whereas with listening green, it's pretty much only directs its its dye to this area. So immediately your clinical eye goes right to the area of concern. So though you can use both, uh, lysamine green is a lot easier and, and probably a lot more consistent from a clinical perspective. Chris, when you looked at these dyes, did you use different um, lighting sources? So for example, did you use cobalt blue light in a rat number 12 filter with fluorescein? And did you have any type of uh, dimming apparatus or any type of diff- light diffuser when you were working with the lysamine green? I mean, what, what were the controls there? So I, I went through a number of different pilots uh, before launching the study to, 
to to come up with with the best approach to deliver the best images because I did take photographic images that then were uh, objectively analyzed by a computer mm-hmm. system uh, mm-hmm. as well as then my eyes. Um, and so yes, with uh, sodium fluorescein, uh, we did use a ratin filter. Um, with the lithium green, there's an option for a filter out there, but I didn't feel like I had to use it. Um, I did take these images both with a diffuser as well as with direct light, and I actually got cleaner images with less reflections using the diffuser. So yeah, you were spot on. I, I did I did try to consist. I, you know, I use the same camera, same slit lamp apparatus, and same imaging system with every single subject and every single eye, same mag, same room to to achieve the greatest amount of consistency. So Chris, if I think I heard you correct, you said you assessed it at the slit lamp, took the images, and then you sent it off for an objective metric. So so I did something similar years ago, but only with the OCT measuring central corneal clearance of a scleral lens. And I estimated the central corneal clearance of these lenses. And then I had the patient sit behind an OCT and my technician took those measurements and we compared what my estimates were compared to the OCT. And I'll jump to the conclusion of my study. I was absolutely horrible. I was horrific. My (laughs) estimates were terrible. So much so that I rely very little on my slit lamp clearance estimate at this point. Chris, you are much more knowledgeable than I am. So how how did you compare when you kind of did it at the slit lamp versus then give it to a third party where they can now... I think the biggest advantage is the software is analyzing it and there's consistencies to that, that removes some of that human element, but how consistent were you or how much of variability was there? So, um, what I did is I, I really wanted to lend some objectivity to this, given the disarray of reports that had pre-existed my work for the past, let's say, 15 plus years. Um, and so I looked at everything out there. Uh, some researchers had used a, a program out of uh, NIH called ImageJ, but it didn't it struggled with sodium fluorescein usage, and it really wasn't automated at all. And, and so then I, I met with some researchers out of University of Houston that I used a customized MATLAB program, which we weren't sure it would work with sodium fluorescein. At the end of the day, it really wouldn't. So then I, I worked with um, Alcon had contracted with a company out in France to uh, come up with a program called ADSYS, which was specifically used for lysamine green, but we were unsure about sodium fluorescein. And as it turned out, we were able to adapt its use. So when I say I looked, what I had to do is take take these images and then, so let's say with with, uh, sodium fluorescein, Um, the lid wiper does stain, but as I mentioned, the whole tarsus stains too. So I had to then go uh, manually and erase the areas that were not on the lid margin so that the computer that would analyze in square millimeter, you know, millimeter squared, the mm-hmm. area of staining. You know, yeah. one of the challenges yeah. that um, that Dr. Korb had in his work is where he encouraged us to assess lid wiper epitheliopathy by millimeters horizontal length and millimeters sagittal depth. Well, the eyelid is circumlinear. When you when you avert it, it's still curved. And it's yep. very difficult to use a yep. straight ruler on a curved structure. Um, yep. And so really measuring area of stained tissue, uh, I believe delivered far more consistency than our just mental guess of what a uh, essentially heightened width would be. Chris, so, so, so take all of this, like everything that you've worked on Mm -hmm. and what are the clinical applications of this like today, right after the research? And then what do you see in the next one, five, 10 years with 
kind of what you've what I would say is almost rediscovered and 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 reclassified. Yeah. So, you know, I, I gave you one of the take homes already, which is if you're going to be looking for this, uh, you, you need two drops of dye and wait a little bit of time before you look. Once you do that simple step, you know, you're down the road in the races to really have some good data. And Chris, when you say two drops of dye, you're talking about research grade like micro pipettes with the dye in it. Is that correct? Well, well I use a micro pipette, but I believe that this is adaptable to what we typically do in patient care, which is wet a uh, impregnated strip of dye. Um, and so if it's sodium fluorescein, wet the drop, shake it off, and then touch the conjunctiva. If it's yep. listening green, get a drop on that strip, wait a good five seconds, and then instill it, and you should get a decent amount. But the crazy thing is there was a separate group of researchers, which blew me away that actually did some research on three different brands of lysamine green and found that they behave grossly differently. <laughs> one brand didn't stain at all. The other brand was mediocre and one brand is, which is, was the one that did well. So I immediately went to work after reading that paper and said, what the heck brand do we buy? And we actually bought the right brand. Uh, and so it's, oh. you know, it's, it's just one of those weird things in patient care. Um, so that's interesting, Chris. I was going to say, we, we we make assumptions about the tools that we use and purchase in clinical practice, and we never even right. assume that what you just said is even a factor. Yeah, who would have thought that? Uh, I, I work with a contact or with a anterior segment photography company, and they say that sometimes they can't adapt their equipment to certain slit lamps because the qualities of the cobalt blue f- lights in them are different. They're just different amongst different manufacturers. Wow. It's wild. Yeah. So Chris, so um yeah. So 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 I do saying more. then so just wetting the wetting the listening green, but is it two dabs or is it and waiting a certain given period of time or just one dab is enough? No, I I think I th- I would actually wet two separate strips. Okay. And put and put them in because 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 there's going to be some wait time at least a minute and that's a long time the strip's going to dry out in a minute. Yep, and a minute in between the patient. Okay, so one application wait about a minute, then take another strip and wet it and apply it again. Okay, you got it. Good to know. Good to know. What are the other two, Chris? So the next the, the next piece of work that I published was well, what are the clinical consequences if you don't do this? So I, I told you what the optimal procedure is. And yeah. then I tried to do what a clinician would typically do, what I would typically do, which yeah. is put a drop in and look. Yep. Uh, and I found that with sodium fluorescein, there was like a 95% risk of false negatives. And really? With listening green, there was a 75% risk of false negatives. So wow. no wonder these studies didn't agree. Because if you use a haphazard approach, study A would say nothing was going on. Study B would say, what are you, crazy? There's a ton going on. And so it probably explains why there was some debate in the literature. Wow, Chris, that's a great piece of information to know. Okay, and you said there was one more piece, yep. one more yeah. nugget. The last piece I kind of alluded to a little bit that I, I that I didn't find the prior grading system. I, I found it difficult uh, to, to really uh, implement in patient care consistently, and so I, I, you know, I do what we I did and validated what we use for pretty much everything else in the anterior segment, which is a photographic grading scale. So much, you know, much like the Efron grading scale and the CCLRU grading scale, uh, I validated a set of four images of 
grades, you know, zero, one, two, three of what this condition looks like and, uh, you know, tested it in, in some graders and then retested it in terms of, you know, inter uh, observer uh, reliability and intra observer reliability and found that it works really well. And so I published that it's open access. And so anybody can print it off. And I think it's, if you're going to look for this condition, which I think is relevant in, in the complexities of the world of dry eye and the complexities of contact lens discomfort, you know, because there's lots of patients that we see when they're complaining like crazy, but we look, we're like, well, your eyes kind of look normal to me. And then we see patient B who eyes look horrible, but they're not complaining. So this whole issue of anterior seg is complex to say the least. So if you're going to look for this condition to give you another piece of information, um, this grading skill, I think will make us be uh, deliver a whole lot more consistency. Chris, that was an absolutely wealth of knowledge. And I've already taken a few nuggets away that I'm going to implement in my own clinical practice, just because I'm sometimes surprised when I don't see lid wiper epitheliopathy. And I truly understand at this point why sometimes I might be missing it. Chris, thank you for your time and, and sharing all this information with us. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of the OI Show. 